0: Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. Now, my guest today is Anne Seber, a journalist and a biographer whose books have examined immense periods of change, narrating the lives of incredible women, from Mother Teresa and Wallace Simpson, to how the women of Paris lived, loved, and died in her bestseller, Les Parisiennes. She brings to life the stories of people who have made a phenomenal difference but are often under-recognized for their achievements. She herself, however, is no stranger to achievement with a career that spanned working with the BBC World Service, Reuters, The Times, Guardian, Spectator, and many more. And welcome to Changemakers. Let's start with your, with your best tip for life, that you have to be able to live alone before you can live with other people. You spend a lot of time with people through your life. Tell us more.
1: Well... The the reason I chose that is because as a writer, you have to live inside your head. You can't get other people to write a book for you. But I chose it also because when I was 21, far too young, knowing nothing about the world, having lived a very sheltered upbringing in suburban Surrey, I was lucky enough to be taken on by Reuters as the first woman they had on their graduate trainee scheme. and part of the training is to send you to a foreign capital. Now, I went there speaking French, German and Russian, but they decided that all those languages um, were led to places that were far too dangerous for a girl, and I was a girl, not a woman, of of 21, so they sent me to Rome. I had to learn Italian. And there I was, age 21, knowing absolutely nothing about the world, living in a flat on my own. I drove there. I had a car. I used to do night shifts in the office because I was the most junior, so they gave me the overnight shifts and came home at about four in the morning. During my year there, I had some interesting experiences. We may not go into the personal ones, but my flat was burgled when I went away skiing and I had to learn how to deal with the police. And I was certainly used by the office to deal with stories that they thought only women can. And my goodness, I grew up an awful lot in that year. Mm. And it stood me in very good stead for the rest of my life, writing books, thinking alone, solitude. And now we're in lockdown and solitude is-
0: The thing, And, and I suppose resilience as well.
1: Well, I guess I'm, I'm as emotional as everyone else. But I think what I can say to myself is, okay, I've done it once. I know I can do it. And lockdown for me was a bit of a double whammy because I was just coming up to finishing a book. So in some ways, it was absolutely wonderful because I really had two months Day after day to do nothing else but concentrate on what I was writing, not to forget what I'd written the day before, not to repeat myself. And I did finish the book, but also two years into my research, my husband died and suddenly I find myself a widow. So I am completely alone. And I thought, Um. well, when I finish my book, I'm really going to go out on the town, I'm going to party (laughs) like there was no end to everything. And I, I find myself blocked. So, you know, I'm really hit by having to stay at home. And I actually discover I don't mind my own company so much. There's always books.
0: Because it's, it's often something that people fear being on their own, their own company. I mean, if you, were to, if you were to advise people that are sat there going, OK, I love the sound of that, but it's impossible. I'll never be able to do it. How do you learn to live alone well?
1: I find that impossible to answer because I don't really like living alone. I adore human company, and I think it's absolutely essential. And that's one of the things that I really had reinforced in lockdown. I'm, I'm okay on my own, and I can spend a day doing all sorts of things, and I don't just mean tidying cupboards, but I do crave human companionship, Touch hugs. I mean, we're all longing for for that. I assume, unless you're a real, um solitary person. But I know that it will happen. I think. I guess I'm probably an optimist, and I think you know this will mm. be over soon. So while it lasts, I can manage. And um, you know, we're very lucky with the internet and phone and all those connections and Skype and Zoom that you're not completely alone now. But it's not the same as. Human contact.
0: Well, well, let's let's go from, I guess, from a world in lockdown to to a city in in um, in military lockdown. Because your uh, your book, Les Parisiennes, how the women of Paris lived, loved, and died in the nineteen forties, um, is a book that I have to say I read. I absolutely loved it, um, mainly because of the completely untold story. I think of how women shaped that city in that particular period. Give us a sense of why you wrote it, what you found out um, in in the process. And also, I suppose, the impossible question of do you see parallels of a world in lockdown and a city in military lockdown then and now?
1: Well, let me answer the first bit first, why I wrote it. It goes back to university. I read... Um, history, and I specialised in French history and French history between the wars and particularly the French socialist Prime Minister Léon Blum of whom nobody in England seemed to have heard but I was always longing to write about him and he has a cameo role but what I discovered... from from all those years ago was that actually people in England have a very one-dimensional view of how the French, and particularly French women, responded to the Germans that they caved in June the 14th, 1940, when the Germans occupied Paris, Um, without, as they proudly said, a shot being fired. Oh, why didn't the French defend themselves better? And from Winston Churchill onwards, who always was appalled at the lack of a backbone in the French. And um, I, I guess I felt, well, that's, there's an element of truth in that, but perhaps there's another version. And I love being revisionist and looking at the roles of women, whether they're wives or mothers or daughters or women behind a great man. Why haven't they been written about historically? And when I came to examine Paris, the key fact was that in June, 1940, nearly 2 million Frenchmen were taken as prisoner of war. So all the young, virile, fighting age Frenchman disappeared off the streets. So Paris became almost overnight a feminized city, and it was up to the women to decide how they responded. And, uh, you know, there was a range of choices, and that's one of the things that I always come back to. Whatever, anything else is taken from you. And read Viktor Frankl's The Search for Meaning. You always have an ultimate choice as to how you'll respond in any given situation. So, you know, the, the women could have spat in the Germans' faces and they'd be shot. They could change the Gothic road signs, turn them the wrong way around. They could choose not to go into the restaurants. Or, you know, they could choose to dress as well as they could. And that was one of the interesting responses I found. They they had a shortage of fashion, shortage of material, shortage of hair, color, makeup, all those things. But they did what they could to keep their sense of style so that, Whatever else the Germans did, they couldn't take away this pride in how they looked. So that to me was a very interesting discovery because people think, oh, when you write about fashion in history, you know, that's dumbing down, that's superficial. But actually, and we can perhaps come on to that, there was a real reason why fashion was key to the French economy during the war. Um, But the second half of your question um, was, what are the parallels to lockdown today? Well, you know, you're asking a historian. So I think I have to say that that's too easy. There are too many variables. I can see why it's irresistible, but listen, when you're dealing with wartime and life and death on the edge, and you're dealing here with an unknown enemy, a virus, it's not really the same. I absolutely understand why you're asking for the parallels, because people do discover mm. resilience, perhaps things they didn't realise they they had, and certainly shortages and how you get round shortages is very interesting. But um, I I actually think that life and death, fighting the Nazis. Is, is not quite the same as fighting a virus. No,
0: I, 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 I totally accept that. I mean, I suppose the thing that I took out of the book was how things like self-esteem, how things like culture and fashion were not just only an economic response. They were also a social response about how you maintain... Your sense of self, how you maintain your sense of identity in times that might be very, very difficult, because I mean I think you know the thing that I would say is having read it was that I felt that you took a very sort of balanced view between those that were clearly um collaborating and those that were trying to resist and but nevertheless, there were still stories on either side of people that were trying to build lives, which is I suppose. The question, put another way, is that the keys to building a life under extreme stress, were there were there lessons that you took from that in terms of how to successfully do it? Well,
1: I, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head talking about the economic necessity of survival. And if, if we look at fashion in Paris during the war, um, the man who really saved the Paris couture industry, the maison, was, was a man. So, you know, my book is far from being anti-male, although it's about women. Um, Lucien Lelong, who was the head of the Chambre syndicale, decided very early on he was not going to let the Germans take the fashion industry lock, stock, and barrel to Berlin because that's what Hitler wanted. Hitler didn't really approve of um, Nazi wives coming to Paris for, for their fashions. But Lucien Lalonde pointed out that you can't just take the designers who do the drawings without taking the women. And it was mostly East European women, refugees, often Jewish, Um, who worked in their atelier and who all had a specialist skill of embroidery or attaching fur collars or pleating or zips or whatever it was. But there were 20,000 of these women. And by saving their jobs and persuading the Germans, he couldn't, Hitler could not transport the fashion industry. He created a rod for his own back, really, because he had to produce. Um, wool and cotton, which was in short supply or didn't exist at all. So he did actually get involved in real collaboration with the Germans to make an artificial fiber um, that was created by German cellulose from German pine trees, but it was made up into a fabric a bit like rayon in, in French Factories. So, what I guess I'm saying is that it came very close to the edge. And who bought these dresses? Well, it was the German women, but it was also French collaborating women, the French Gestapo, as they're called, the wives of those who indulged in the black market. So, it's a very grey area. And there were many people after the war who disapproved of women who had bought fine clothes. You know, they expected them to manage with cutting down perhaps (laughs) their. dead husband suits and not wearing smart clothes but somehow women in Paris believed because the terms of the armistice were that they couldn't wear uniform they couldn't show that they were on the right side somehow they felt the best we can do is to support this industry and to go on looking as smart as we can and not let the Germans take away our our french pride what gives them the name of parisienne <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I mean, because I, what I particularly—I mean, uh, there were many tracks I enjoyed, but I suppose the, the, you know, how you narrated the Allied soldiers sort of arriving, and and here were these extremely chic, well-presented people that that are, you know, that, that I suppose sort of further, sort of, um, I guess, intensified this view that that, that Paris somehow had it easy um, compared to other European cities, and. And yet this, this story of, of fashion, this story of cultural expression um, moves on, I guess, when when you talk about um, after the war with the new look um, exploding culturally in 47 by Christian Dior to sort of symbol the fact that austerity was not potentially the way the Parisians wanted to go. And I sort of feel that, you know, that that story is it's so missing from, I guess, the traditional male telling of war and the male telling of economics, this, this sort of like this cultural identity that, that, that explains so much in terms of why people behave the way they do.
1: Thank you. I, I'm really so thrilled that you've read the book so closely and picked up on so <laughs> many of these themes that were close to my heart. But I'll just take Christian Dior briefly because that story is really emblematic of exactly what you're getting at. So um, Christian Dior, during the war, was working for Lucien Lelong, making clothes that the French Gestapo or Nazi wives were buying. And yet his sister, Catherine Dior, of whom few people had heard until a few years ago was actually in one of the most courageous bands of resistors and she was picked up and betrayed and was sent to this brutal camp outside Berlin called which was just for women and she only mm. narrowly survived Ravensbrück. and why after the war did she not talk about her story and, and reveal what she had done because she was in love with a married man a Catholic who couldn't get a divorce who already had children and she preferred to live in peace and quiet and not draw attention to what she had done but uh, because she preferred to live with the man she loved albeit literally living in sin in in conservative, Catholic France and she ran a wholesale flower business. So, you know, that's one reason why these stories have not been told before. But what on earth did she think of her brother who had been designing dresses for, for collaborators? So it's, it's a real emblematic story. And, and the other question, um, that, that you picked up on was the Allied soldiers coming to Paris who all thought they were coming to have a merry ball in these wonderful French brothels, because of course the brothels continued throughout the occupation. And I think if there's one group of women who have really not been recognized, it's the prostitutes who had no choice. I mean, I I know mm. I said that everybody has some kind of choice and you do in your attitude, but I think the prostitutes are a group generally in France who had to do what they were told, and they haven't generally written their stories. They're uh, mostly not interested in writing or articulating what happened. But a lot of the brothels were fiercely left-wing, uh, pro-resistant, they often hid evading airmen, they hid guns. And uh, I, I think that their, their story is is one that you know really needs to be told. And, and it's just one of the strands, the nuances of Paris, along with the dancers and the singers who were all picked up for this new crime of collaboration horizontale because they had visibly supported the enemy. But actually, um, I, I think it's rather a different story, which I've
0: tried to, to show in the book. I mean, you, you certainly did. I mean, and also, I guess the male response to that after the war. But I I guess a question that comes from this is that what I felt about the book was that it was a really fresh take on a much told story about the war, about France, Paris, but from a completely different perspective. And the perspective was the significance of women in the story of that city. Do Do you think Sort of bringing the story up to date in terms of the telling of the role of women in history is 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 that now wide open to tell? Is there a is there a, a growing interest, readership? Do you, do you sense that you're on 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 the on the right side of the wave with this in terms of actually telling these stories that clearly have not been told um, to do them full justice?
1: Well, thank you. Of of course, I love hearing you say all all those complimentary things. I can't pretend I'm the first. I think I was lucky to become a biographer um, after Reuters decided that they wanted to let me go because um, I became pregnant, which, of course, you couldn't do Mm. these days. But 42 years ago, you could. And I thought my world was going to absolutely collapse. But I started writing books. And the vogue at that point was already to write biographies of the wives, the daughters, the sisters, if you like, the sister of Henry James. You know, there the were a lot of them, mostly literary figures. But I decided that I could use my journalistic training as, as well as I've, I've had literary training as well, but it's the mixture of the two. I love interviewing real people. And so, um, I I was – the phrase was coined by Le Monde recently. I never thought Le Monde would take any notice of an English woman writing about a subject that obviously is French. But Le Monde has been very kind to me, and they described it as la méthode seba. So I'm very proud of this, and la méthode seba – is a mixture of interviewing people who are alive as well as going to archival sources. And so, mm. you know, it's it's an area that I'm able to bring a journalistic training to, and aren't I lucky that I was so well trained at Reuters?
0: Well I Well, I mean, I mean, and and actually, wonderful um, to have that description of that style of storytelling. But I mean, just you mentioned Reuters there. I mean, this is when I I believe you were in New York um, at at the time. Um, I mean, that experience of not being given um, maternity leave, as as I understand, the the reasoning was that your husband had a well-paid job. Was the (laughs) was was um, um, uh, so? I mean, in terms of the journey from New York then to. 2020 today one of my my um former guests was um newly ennobled um helena morrissey um and she's written a book called a good time to be a girl do you think it is
1: do i think now is or the
0: 1970s Well, no, I think now compared to everything you've lived through in terms of where where we are today compared to that lifetime of experiences that that, that you've lived through.
1: I don't think I can give you a straightforward answer to that. I think the 1970s, of course, it it was... um, Sexist and full of misogyny. And when I was taken on by Reuters, and I would walk into the newsroom, and everyone would comment on my clothes and my makeup, and you know, men would put their hands on my knee, and I just thought, well, this is the world I've entered, and you put up with it. I mean, Fleet Street in the nineteen seventies was a deeply male place to work. There were no shops for women. You know, if you couldn't hold your own in in the pub at night. I thought my career was over because, you know, I certainly couldn't hold my own. So all of that was very difficult to be a girl and and you're not expected to do that now. It's okay to take a call from an editor and say, actually, I've got the phone in one hand and I'm bathing the children with the other hand. I could never do that. I had to have a nanny and pretend that I worked in some office because I was terrified that an editor would not commission me to write a piece. If he thought I was actually a mother, well, you know, my I, I have children who are mothers now and, and they can't believe that I tell that sort of story. So, you know, there are pros and cons. And I think in, in one sense, I was very lucky that Reuters took me on because clearly 1972, they were looking for a woman. They decided it was about time. Would they take on a 20-year-old now who'd had no experience? Answer, no. I'd have to have had. Mm. Women are so much better qualified now. More women than men graduate from um, journalism courses, from accounting courses, from legal courses. Women have to do so much more. It's a much more competitive world. So I think you can answer it both, argue it both ways.
0: But if I could just wave a magic wand and allow you to advise your younger self, what what would you say about the the life experience um, that you were preparing for and how it ultimately worked out?
1: I would say enjoy the journey. Take. I mean, I just feel I've been... I, I don't think I realised when I was young quite how privileged I was to meet the Dalai Lama, Elizabeth Taylor, Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, all those figures from um, the sporting world, political world, film world, and I just... I, I, There was an element of me that realized I, I had, as they call it, a ringside seat on history, but just to have relaxed and enjoyed it a bit more and recognized how all these experiences will build in to everything you become. And I couldn't have written Les Parisiennes in my youth. I mean, I think that's something I didn't realize when I was young, that actually experience of being older, being a grandmother, is not so terrible. It actually has been wonderful to talk to these women who didn't want to tell their stories when they were young. They wanted to protect their children after the war and move on and have normality. But as Mm. grandparents, they wanted to die having made sense of their lives and, you know, giving it some narrative arc. And it's taken me a while to realize there are some benefits in being old shall we say
0: (laughs) so well well i mean well let's talk about history because you know i'm a i I mean I, i love history one of the things i i i often worry about is um that we live in a world which which celebrates modernity it celebrates the future but actually history is such an important way of understanding the human condition in terms of if you were to make the pitch for that in terms of why modern audiences who may well want to read about the future and science fiction and maybe a lot of other different things. In terms of why understand human history to understand, I guess, that future journey, what what are the things that your studies have have helped you gain, do you think, um, that are unique to the eye of a historian and a biographer?
1: Oh, that is a really interesting question. Well, you're absolutely right that the human condition is is static and getting in touch with the human condition in times of extremis in great danger is something that i've certainly learned from history that you take risks because it's terribly important to feel that you are a human being so you know you experience life on the edge and that's why you see some of these women uh, who work for SOE with extraordinary courage who were prepared to take these great risks because they understood that it, there are some things that you have to risk everything for. I, I, I suppose because I'm always this on the one hand, on the other hand, as you're noticing, I remember being taught as a historian that there are no lessons in, the, the only lesson in history is that there are no lessons in history. In other words, you can't just take history and say, look, it happened once before. I mean, one of the books that I, I've written about is, is called That Woman, about Wallace Simpson. And I am regularly asked, to compare the behavior of Meghan and Harry with Edward and Wallace Simpson. And I'm afraid I, I shoot that down because it simply isn't the same. So while it's terribly important to understand history and you can learn an awful lot from it, you know, the variables there are that the church is not interested in commenting on Harry and Meghan. Harry is six in line to the throne. He's, he's not the king who's giving up everything. Our attitude to privilege and wealth and duty and all those things have changed dramatically. We understand um that that personal fulfillment and individual satisfaction actually are valid which in 1936 we didn't and we we're more sympathetic to divorce than we were we were then so you know you can't really say that one situation is the same on the other hand Oh, listen, it's just, why am I talking like this? History is just fascinating. It's it, it, That's really all that matters. It's just a wonderful way to understand how we got to where we are.
0: That's what I wanted you to say. A wonderful way to understand how we got to where we really are. And my thanks there to Anne Sever, a brilliant author whose inspiring work has looked to set the record straight on the lives of so many incredible women, and I think what an episode we've been—from the City of Light, Paris, to the to the Big Apple, New York, and, and lots in between as well. My thanks to Anne, and do you join me next time on Change Makers.